right, well, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany. I want to welcome you all this morning. Thanks for joining us to worship together. Thanks for being here. Uh, excited to be with you this morning. Uh, so you're joining us, if this is your first time, uh, welcome. I'll give you a special welcome. Uh, we are just jumping in. You're here for the very beginning of this series. Uh, I'm excited to, to speak to you this morning. Now that might seem odd with what you're looking at on the screen there, considering what we're talking about. Uh, we're going to be talking about death this morning. And we're opening up this series, so you're dead, now what? And so the beginning of that starts with death, and that's what we're going to cover this morning. Uh, but I feel like the Lord has really spoken to me on this. I feel like he has really uh, ministered and changed some things in my perspective. And so my hope for us is as we, uh, as you come in here and then as you leave this place, as you walk out those doors, my hope this morning is that you are looking at death perhaps a little bit differently than when you came in. And I believe that there's a lot of hope there, and, and God has... Uh, really given me some things, laid some things in my heart and worked me through some things. So I want to I do that with you this morning. So we're just going to take a journey together. Uh, the reality is that for many of us, we try to push uh, the thought of death and the thought of eternity out of our mind. We try to push those things into the recess of our mind and not even think about them, especially uh, when you're the age of most of the people who are sitting up here just to my left, these young people. Uh, they don't think about death at all because it seems so far. As we saw in that little clip there, that little video, uh, that we all think that we have so many years until uh, we're finally going to have to face it. And so we kind of push it off. Uh, the reality is, though, for all of us, we cannot cheat it. We cannot cheat death. The, the death rate, as far as I understand, is 100%. Everybody has to face it. And so let's talk about it. Let's talk about what does God say about it. Now, for, I, I want to be sensitive to, to many of you here because for many of you, this topic of death is going gonna, is gonna to be difficult for us to talk about for two reasons. Number one, you might be sitting here this morning with a, a diagnosis or a prognosis that is less than... Um, Let's say less than and good, all right? You're thinking, I don't know how much longer I have on this earth. I'm not sure how much longer I, I'm going to be walking on this planet. And so death has become kind of eminent to you. Maybe you're up in years and you're saying, I don't know how many years I have left. Or the second thing is perhaps you've lost a loved one along the way. And maybe it's close and maybe it's farther back in the distance. But either way, as we start this conversation about death, it's going to rake up some of those emotions and feelings of losing that person and the separation that is now there. So I want to be sensitive to that. And so as we walk through this, I pray that I would be sensitive, but I'm going to need some help because I'm not that good. So I'm going to ask that God would, would walk with us this morning. And so I just ask, let, let's go before the Lord and ask for his mercy as we talk about death. So Father, we come to you and we thank you for your mercies. Your word says that your mercies are new every single morning. So whether we're sitting here and we blew it last night, we blew it this morning, and we feel separated from you, we feel shame, we feel hurt, we feel darkness, Lord, you make all things new, and you are working in each one of us. I pray that this morning, as we talk about this thing, death, and having to face it, Lord, that you would give us a fresh perspective, a new perspective, your perspective on it, and Lord, help us to walk in it in a way that brings you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we start this conversation, you need to understand the foundation uh, of from where I'm coming from. My perspective, my view on death. I believe my view is the view that all Christians should have. Uh, the foundation of the way I view death is drastically different than the way the world would look at death. 
the way that others would look at death. So the foundation for the Christian and our understanding is actually pretty simple. It's simply Jesus. Right? The foundation, as I understand it, for how we view death and, and understand God's word is Jesus. Now, we've just come out of a season of Easter where we celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we, we mix in some Easter eggs and bunnies and chocolates and all that other stuff. But Easter is really about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And around the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there, is, there will be people that try to argue it. But historically, if you view the death and resurrection of Christ, it is really hard to, to argue with the fact that there was a man named Jesus who lived during the first century that was killed and then was risen again. There was, there's a lot of evidence around his resurrection. And so as we look at all these passages... Because uh, we're going to look at some passages. As we look at the Bible and we start digging into the Bible, it would be possible for you to be skeptical of if I talk about a guy named Enoch, who in Genesis chapter 5, the, the word of God says that Enoch walked with God and then was no more. He disappeared. It would be possible for you to be skeptical of that and say, well, come on, that really happened? Because I thought we all faced death. Or there was a prophet, a, a powerful prophet of God named Elijah, and he, upon his death, he didn't actually face death because there was a chariot of fire that came down and picked him up and took him into heaven as his, uh, as his follower, Elisha, stood there and watched. Now, I'm still looking for that bus station because for me, that's the way I want to go out. I want to go out on a chariot of fire. I want that ride into heaven. That seems pretty awesome to me. But so there's only two people in the word of God that did not have to face death, Enoch and a and Elijah. So it would be possible for you to be skeptical of that, but here's why I am not. Because Jesus was not. Jesus did not look at those passages from Genesis or from Samuel as, uh, as folklore. He understood them to be fact. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, I understand them to be fact. And I understand that his word is true and trustworthy. So as we talk about death, and we look into a bunch of passages. We're going to walk through a lot of passages this morning. Now, I'll tell you, I'll put them up on the screen for you so you didn't have to do all the work of flipping, flipping through. But we're going to build off of what God tells us about death. So let's get started. <clears throat> Why even talk about death? Why do we, should we even discuss it? Well, the first passage that comes to mind is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 through 28. And it says this, And just as each person is destined to die once... So whether you are a Christian or an atheist, you believe this, that we are destined to die once, all right? We die one time, and after that comes judgment. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, because he already did that, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. So what are the implications of this verse? Well, here's our big idea this morning. What you believe about death and eternity will determine the way you live. What you believe about death and eternity will determine the way you live your life. And I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one comes out of Matthew chapter 12. And it says, I tell you this. You give an account, or I tell you, and I tell you this. You must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Those are the words of Jesus. So you think about this. When we enter into eternity, when we enter into God's presence, we will have to give an account for every word we say. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? 
When God tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak, perhaps this is why, because we'll have to give an account for every idle word we've said. There are probably thousands of words that I wish that I could take back after I said them. There were times when I spoke that I almost wish I could grab the words out of the air because I was thinking, please don't tell me that came out of my mouth. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one in that category. It goes on, Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 13, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. I would just stop here for a second. If you are currently fighting or battling an addiction that you think you can hide from people, or that there's something going on in your life, like an affair or something like that, let me just tell you that there are no secrets, all right? God's word tells us that nothing is hidden in all of creation. You're not getting away with it, all right? It's not a secret to God because he sees it, because he sees all. So everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him, God, to whom we must give an account. So these two passages tell me this. I will give an account for the words that I speak and the things that I do, my actions. Now, please, please believe me when I say this, that I do not think that these passages tell me that I should try to earn my salvation, that if I just clean up my speech well enough, if I just do all the right things, then then I'll be right with God because that ship has sailed. I'm already past that point. I'm, I'm way past that point. I could never make up for my sins. And praise God for Jesus. So that's what I will hang my hat on when I stand before my Creator When I have to give an account for the words that I've said and the actions that I've done, the only thing that I can say is have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And I praise you for Jesus, that he died on the cross and paid for my sins and has given me his righteousness that I can now stand before you clean because of what he has done, not because of what I have done. So, what I do believe this this perspective on death and eternity, though, does shape is the way that I live my life. So I'm not trying to earn my salvation, but I understand that I will stand before God and give an account for the way that I raise my children. I will give an account for the way I treat my wife. I will give an account for the way that I lead this church. The words that I speak from this stage, I'll give an account for those things. So because of that weight, it changes the way that I live. It changes the things that I do and say. Because I understand that there is a God who loves me, that cares for me, and is watching me. Now, I want to unpack this a little deeper, and hopefully we'll get it a little clearer for you. Death is an ugly thing. Any of you have experienced it, it is ugly. I grew up, for the most part, I grew up sheltered from death. I didn't have to experience, I didn't go through losing someone really close to me. I had an uncle who passed away before I was born, four years before I was born. I had my grandfather passed away when I was one, so I didn't really know him. And beyond that, I didn't experience death close to me until I became a pastor, and I, I got to start to walk with some of you folks. And as a pastor, you get invited into some of those sacred moments, some of those moments when people are passing from life into death. Now, I did experience it just a couple years back now, when my grandmother at the age of 83 passed away. Now, I knew my grandmother really well. I spent quite a bit of time with her. There was a time that I actually lived with my grandmother when I was about 13 years old because our family was selling our house in Elizabethtown, and I desperately wanted to get back here to New Holland. For some reason, I really wanted to go to Garden Spot. Don't ask me why. 
<clears throat> I'm messed up, I guess. But I wanted to be back here, so I came and lived with my grandmother while my parents were up in E-Town trying to sell the house. And so I knew her well. She was a strong woman, an independent woman. And at the end of her life, she, she started to struggle with dementia and started to set in. And she became paranoid of so many things. And the last couple of weeks when she was in a nursing home, she became so paranoid that the staff was trying to steal her stuff. They were trying to take her things. And I can remember going in to visit her and, and just looking at her and feeling so sorry for her. Like, Grandma, they're, they're not trying to take your things. And now as I look back, I think it's kind of comical because she didn't have anything. The only thing she had were, like, framed pictures of the family and, like, doilies that she had crocheted. I'm like, the staff's not trying to steal your pictures or your doilies, okay? Like, they don't want that stuff. But in her mind, her mind was deteriorating to the point where she thought that was the reality, that they were trying to get her. And so if you've walked with anybody through death, you've seen this happen. And so the question becomes, God, why do we go through that? Why does that happen? Why have you allowed that to happen? Well, God is a promise keeper. He is not a promise breaker. And from the very beginning, he's talked to us about this thing called death. And I am afraid that we just haven't listened. So let's, let's walk this for a second. All right, those of you who are familiar I'll get, or are unfamiliar, I'll get you up to speed. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates man. He creates Adam and Eve, and he blesses them and says, Go and be fruitful and multiply and eat of the fruit of the garden. But there's one command I'm going to give you. So God is not a tyrant in the sky. He did not hand down a hundred commands for Adam and Eve to listen to. But he walked with them and he said, there's just one thing I want you to do. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat of it, you will surely die. That's a promise. If you eat of it, you will surely die. That is a promise. And God keeps his promises. He wasn't lying. He wasn't joking. He was being serious, but Adam and Eve didn't take him seriously, and they sinned against him, and ever since, death has entered into to our reality. So let's look at the passage here. This is when God is dealing out the discipline to Adam and Eve. And so he says, and since, and to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded, I will stop there. Men, you cannot use that passage. Adam listened to his wife, see what happened to him. All right, that's not going to work, all right? Don't do that. But ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat. The ground is cursed because of you. And all of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. All the farmers groaned because they know that reality. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So God kept his promise, and he told Adam, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so Adam sins, and death and heartache enter the picture. Before this, there was a perfect peace. What was the word? The Hebrew word was called shalom. All right? There was this perfect peace. But after this comes death and heartache and destruction. And the Bible builds this consistently throughout the word of God that we're reminded of this. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. For all people are mine to judge, says God, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. The person who sins is the one who will die. Again, a link between sin and death. We'll keep going. Romans chapter 5. This is Paul writing about Adam and Eve. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought what? Death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. So all of us 
have sinned. And so therefore, death will impact all of us. This famous verse that many of us could quote, for the wages of sin is death. The reward for our sin is death. But it doesn't stop there. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So salvation comes through knowing Jesus Christ. But the wages of sin is death. Excuse me. So why do we have to face death? It's because of sin. That's it. God kept his promise. Sin entered the world. And therefore we have to face death because of it. Now, if this is where I were to stop, this message would be really depressing. And I would just ask you the question, if you are a person who has ruled out the existence of God or the existence of Jesus, you're sitting here this morning and you're really questioning that, you're battling that, you're saying, I'm not sure that God exists. Let me ask you this one question. If all that we have is 40, 50, 60, 70 years on this planet, that's it. Isn't that depressing to you? The idea that all that that there is is this life, that is really, as I think about it, if I think about it that way, it's really depressing for me. But as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, Jesus tells us that's not the story. That's not the way it ends. And he goes on, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, because God's children are human beings, that's you and I, made of flesh and blood, the son Jesus, all right, Jesus steps out of glory and into this world for our behalf. The son also became flesh and blood for only as a human being could he die. So he had to strip himself of his divinity and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So he sets free those who are slaves to the fear of death because he has conquered it. See, Jesus knows our situation. He knows that we can't pay the debts ourselves. So he steps out of glory into the human frame and dies on our behalf so that we don't have to fear death anymore because he's already conquered it. And here's the reality. I'll give you Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7 says this. For then the dust will return to the earth, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. We often quote this verse in Psalm 139, for, for God loved me and he shaped me in my mother's womb, right? God is the giver of life. God is the one who put breath into your lungs. And so at the end of your life, at the end of your life, this body which is failing, which is falling apart, and the older I get, the more that true that becomes, And it's falling apart, but my spirit will return to be with the Lord. My spirit doesn't end. I don't, it's it's not like a period. It doesn't stop there, but it moves on. And we're going to keep going. It's because of this reality that there was a, a famous pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're not aware of who he was, he was a pastor in Germany through the 30s and 40s. He actually had plotted or got together with some guys and tried to plan the assassination of Hitler. He was captured Two weeks before Germany collapses. Three weeks before Hitler kills himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed for his faith. And as he was 
as he was preparing to die, he wrote a letter to one of his closest friends, and this is what he said in the letter. He knew that death was imminent, and he says, this is the end, but for me, this is just the beginning. Now, how is it that Dietrich Bonhoeffer could say something like that? Because he understood that this life does not end with death. That his life is beyond just physical. There's a spiritual aspect to it. The SS doctor, one of the doctors that was there present when Bonhoeffer was hung, had this to say afterward. He said, I recall a man, devout, brave, and composed, and his death ensued after a few seconds. I have hardly ever seen a man so entirely submissive to the will of God. It's because of this same revelation that Paul in Philippians can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So for me to live is Christ, but to die, it's better. I'd rather die. I'd rather go be with God. But if he has me here for a time, he has me here for a time. I would say this, and and I don't say this with any any shred of arrogance, because I think this is true for all of us. But God has numbered our days And when my day is done, when my day is done, when God says, that's it, you've accomplished the work I've called you to do, I want to go to be home with him. I don't want to stay here on this planet. And you might look at me and you might say, but Chris, what about your wife? What about your kids? What if your life ends today or tomorrow? And what I understand is that God doesn't need me. He doesn't need me to raise my kids. He doesn't need me to love my wife unless that's what he's calling me to do right now. That's part of the work that I have. That's part of my work for his kingdom is to love my wife, care for my wife, care for my kids. But when that time is up, when he says that's it, then there's no work for me to do here anymore. And to die is gain. It's better to be with him than it is to be here. So I want to share with you just some things that God has worked through with me uh, over some some loss that I've experienced in my life. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the story about our son, Josiah, who uh, went through kidney cancer. He lost his kidney, he lost his right kidney uh, at the age of 16, 17 months. Well, before he went through that, we went through a miscarriage. Uh, My wife was expecting at that time our fourth child, and we went into the doctor. We thought that there had been a heartbeat. Well, about 10 weeks in, we went in, had an ultrasound. There was no heartbeat. And we lost that child. If any of you have walked through a a miscarriage, that that can be really difficult. And so that began my quest. I started asking questions of God, like, God, why do you create life only to take it away? Why would you give life only to take it away? Well, then we go through what what happens with Josiah. He's diagnosed with this tumor, this, this kidney tumor. It's a very scary thing to go through when you get that call. And so I can remember standing there right before the operating room doors. And I can remember handing our 16-month-old son over to the nurses as they walk through those doors. And I can remember thinking, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to see him again. And that begins to do some work inside of you. You begin to ask some questions. And I I was saying, God, I know I can trust you, but are you going to care for him? Are you going to heal him? Are you, gonna, are you really going to bring him back to us? 
And God started to speak to me, and he didn't bring me the peace like this. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to heal him. This is going to all be for my glory. It's all going to work out, which is how the story has kind of unfolded. But that wasn't what he gave me at the time. The peace that he gave me at the time was this. I am in control. Right? This, this tumor does not surprise me. I didn't wake up this morning and think, oh, my goodness, Josiah's in, he's going to have surgery? How'd this happen? Who's, who's taking the day off? What's going on up here? All right, God didn't say that. God knew. God knew before that even happened, before Josiah was even formed, that he was going to go through that. And so certainly, he has a better grip on Josiah than I do. And so I had peace in that. Knowing that if God took him home, then God took him home because his day was done. And as painful as that would have been, I can have peace in that. And now some of you might argue, you might say, well, why, why do young people have to die so young? What, what is it? What's going on, God? And I, I just, I don't know that I have a great answer for you that I can give you that will truly comfort you. And I don't want to give you something that's not in here. But I will give you some of the things that God has given me through this journey. Psalm 90, verse 10. Seventy years are given to us, some even live to 80, but even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away. The reality is that some of us will outkick that 70 years or 80, and many of us won't. Many of us won't make it to that point. And so you say, well, why, why die young? Why, why does that happen? I'll give you a couple of passages. I didn't put them up on the screen. You can write them down. The most comforting one I've ever come across is 2 Samuel. And if you've heard the story of David, King David, you know what happened in his life. He was a man after God's own heart, but don't forget he had some pretty big sins in his life. He lusted after Bathsheba, was another man's wife. He had an adulterous affair with her. Eventually he tries to cover it up, and he has Uriah, her husband, killed in the battlefield. So he thinks he's gotten away with it, and God comes to him through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes to him and says, you have committed this great sin. And as a result, the child that you uh, are going to have with Bathsheba is going to die. And at that point, after that child is born, David goes into great mourning and fasting. And he's pleading with God. This is a man after God's own heart. He's pleading with God saying, God, spare the child's life. Don't take the child's life. And seven days later, the child dies. And this is what he says. He gets up from his morning. He starts to eat again. And he says, I know that I can go to be with him, but he cannot come to be with me. What David was acknowledging was, that child is now in the presence of God Almighty. And I will one day go be with him, but he cannot come back to this earth. And I've had a great amount of comfort in that because I know that the child that we lost is in glory with God now. And someday, when my time on earth is done, I will go to be with him or her. But they cannot come back here. The second passage I would give you is out of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, verses 1 and 2. You can look at it sometime this week. God is talking about the nation of Israel, the sinful nation of Israel. And he talks about the mighty men that he takes early to protect them from evil. He takes them early to protect them from evil. Think about this for a second. When you think about the loss of a, a, a young person, 
Is it possible, and I'm just asking the question, is it possible that there was some great evil that God was protecting them from by drawing them home? By calling them to himself? Because that's what he says he does in the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 57. It's an interesting thought when you think about a person dying, what in our terms would be before their time. All right, so I want to close out here. And when I say that, I say that as a pastor, okay? So when I say close out, that means we've got like 20 minutes left. So <laughs> Don't get too excited, all right? But we're going to jump into God's word together, and we're going to look at John chapter 11, because this is a passage where Jesus deals with death, and he deals with death intimately. It's close to him. It impacts him. If you don't have a Bible, there's some hardback Bibles there in the pew in front of you. Please feel free to take that. We will be on page 892. If you don't own a Bible, it's our gift from us to you. Uh, Please read it and enjoy it. So let's jump in here to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Just so you know, John was one of Jesus' closest disciples, in case you didn't know that. John loved Jesus, and Jesus loved John. So John is writing from a first-person point of view. John was here for these things. He saw this. He's writing from experience. So here we go. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Just pause here a second. So why was Lazarus sick? It happened for the glory of God. Last week, I was really sick. I had like the cold, like I felt cold. I was shivering. I had a high temperature and fever. And let me tell you, I was not laying in my bed saying, oh, God, thank you for this sickness because it's going to bring you glory. All right? I I haven't met that person yet. Some of you have diagnoses that impact your life in a dramatic way, whether it's cancer or ALS or MS or whatever it might be, it's impacting you in a horrible way. And when you get that diagnosis, you're probably not thinking, oh, great, God, thank you. Thank you for giving me that so that I can bring glory to you. All right, so now now I'm not saying here that every illness comes because God's going to bring glory to himself in some way out of it, although you might be able to make that point. I'm not making that right now. But what I am saying is Lazarus got sick and it was to the glory of God. So although Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Jesus, or Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, all right, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. That means throw rocks at you and kill you. Are you going there again? Typically, when we get chased out of a town with people that want to throw stones at us and kill us, we don't go back. That's what the disciples are saying. They're smart guys. They're like, I, I don't really want to go back there, Jesus. But Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. He's, he is the light of the world. What he's telling them is, I'm not afraid of darkness because I'm the, I'm the light of the world. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. Just so you know, falling asleep in Scripture, for some reason they use that as an analogy of death. 
I think it's because the idea of falling asleep is that when we fall asleep, we will wake up again, right? We will rise. Death is not a period. It's a comma. But the disciples are dense like we are. So they understood it that way. They were like, the disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was sleeping. But Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. So the disciples, again, like us, they're, they're, they're kind of dense. They're smart guys, though. And they say, if Lazarus is asleep, why we got to go wake him up? Like, that's a long walk to go down there and wake him up. He's going to get better. We don't got to go down there. And so Jesus makes it clear. So verse 14, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. So in other words, all the miracles I've done to this point, all the healings I've done to this point, and you're still questioning who I am. So let me raise somebody up from the dead and let's see if that takes. So Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. And this is when Jesus goes, oh my goodness. Jesus has no intention of going to die. Neither does Thomas, honestly. But Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So verse 17, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you only had been here, my brother would not have died. But she had great faith. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Martha was a smart girl. She knew the word. She knew that at the end of time, there will be a resurrection of the saints. And so she's thinking, well, yeah, Lazarus is going to rise when the rest of us rise. I get that, Jesus. Jesus told her, verse 25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? So I, wanna, I just want to push in on something here. I'm going to speculate. I'm going to say that up front. All right, I am speculating. I'm going to draw together a couple scriptures and try to make a point out of this. Now, if you go before me and it doesn't go down like this, all right, don't come and haunt me in my sleep. All right? Don't, you can come and correct me and tell me, yeah, you were in error, Chris, but, but please, I'm just trying to draw some things from Scripture because Jesus says that if you believe in him, you will never, ever die. So let's put together a couple Scriptures and see if we can uh, understand this better. Matthew chapter 18, this is Jesus speaking about the little children. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. Now, I will tell you this. The Bible does not clearly preach or teach that there is a guardian angel over every one of us. Okay? But it's inferred a little bit. So look, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. He's inferring that there are in some way angels that are looking over these little children. Now, if that's not enough for you, let's keep going. I'll give you three. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. Well, who's going to inherit salvation? The sons and daughters of God. The children of God. You and I, those of us who are followers in Jesus. So what this says is that the spirits are sent to care for those who will inherit salvation. You and I. Last one comes out of the book of Matthew, 
or I'm sorry, Luke. Luke chapter 16, verse 22. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit, by, sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried. Right? So the poor man dies, the angels come and carry him or usher him into where Abraham is, which is in heaven. So here's what I'm inferring. All right? And it's po- maybe it's possible it goes down this way. If you talk to people who work in hospice or work in a hospital, and they see somebody pass from death to, or from life to death and go from this world into the next. I've heard this said time and time again. Witnesses have seen this, that there is some kind of just overwhelming peace that comes over that person as they pass their last breath. And is it possible, is it possible that at that moment the angels that are watching over us come down and they usher us into glory? They say, it's time to go. Your time is done. Let me show you what eternity is all about. And so we leave this life and go into the next one. I'll give you one more passage that might help concrete this for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. And I am convinced, Paul talking, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. So death cannot separate us from God's love. Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book about heaven, says it this way. Not only will death not separate us from Christ, it will actually usher us into his presence. So do you see how the perspective on death starts to change? Like, wait a second. We, we get so uptight about death and we're so concerned about it and so fearful of it. But if death is actually the gateway from this life into eternity, it doesn't look nearly as bad. Because suddenly death is the avenue with which we take to be into the presence of God. Paul tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, let's jump back into John chapter 11. We need to finish up here. So Martha answers her, yes, Lord, she told him, verse 27. I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary and she called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. Why is he angry? Who's he angry with? He's not angry at Martha. He's not angry at Mary. What I believe is happening here is Jesus is really angry at the fact that death and brokenness has entered into our world. And he's experiencing it. He's there. He's seeing it. He's seeing the brokenness. He's feeling the brokenness that Mary and Martha have at the loss of their brother. And he's angry about it. Verse 34, where have you put him, he asked them. And they told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. And guys, this is not like the man cry where you're like, oh, I had something in my eye. No, this is weeping. Like Jesus is weeping bitterly. This is the son of God. 
This is the one who created the heavens and the earth, and he is weeping over death, which tells me that as we experience loss, we too should weep over death. It's okay. With all I'm saying about heaven, it is absolutely the appropriate thing to do to weep and mourn over the brokenness that is in our world. So Jesus weeps, verse 36. The people who are standing nearby, they saw him. See how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? So in other words, where are you at, Jesus? If you love Lazarus so much, why didn't you show up? Jesus was still angry as he arrived. So this isn't meek and mild Jesus. This is Jesus angry. And he arrives at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Let me just ask this. If you start a sentence with Lord and then interject something that you think he doesn't know, that's probably a bad way to put a sentence together. Okay? Jesus knew. Jesus had an understanding that Lazarus had been there for four days. But she's thinking, it's going to smell terrible. So verse 40, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside, and then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his feet wrapped in a head cloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Jesus has the victory over death. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, then the fear of death should escape from you because Jesus has beaten it. He's conquered it. There's victory. And when you have that perspective, when you understand it that way, you can say things and view life differently. I want to give you, I want to read for you just a short segment from a a sermon that Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached uh, in the 1930s. It's very short, but it's very, very profound. So try to stay with me. No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour, waiting and looking forward joyfully to being released from bodily existence. So whether we are young or old, it makes no difference. What are 20 or 30 or 50 years in the sight of God? And which of us knows how near he or she may already be to the goal? That life only really begins when it ends here on earth. That all that, there, that all that is here is only like a prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike to think about. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible. If only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter. If we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace. The greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentle. It beckons us to, <coughs> excuse me, it beckons to us with heavenly power. If only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. 
How do we know that death is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in the world. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous, that we can transform death. What you believe about death and eternity will determine how you live your life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And if you are in him, your death will be ushering you into his presence. That is a glorious thought, whether that's today, tomorrow, or 50 years from now. For you to die as a believer in Jesus and a follower of him is to go and stand and be with him forever. Not such a bad thought when you think about it that way. Let's pray together. Father, we are so limited in our sight. As Paul said, we see only in a mirror half, half of the picture. It's distorted, God, by sin. But Father, I pray that you would be merciful to us, that you would give us a new perspective. Lord, for those that are feeling that sting of death right now, I pray that you would release them, that you would bring them comfort. Lord, we look forward to the day you call us home. But until that time, hold us close. And Lord, help us to seek you with all that we have. In the great and powerful name of Jesus, amen.